Offshoring, which usually refers to the practice of moving jobs from one country to another country, originated in its modern incarnation in the 1960s, at least at scale, when companies in wealthier countries began to move their labor-intensive jobs from local cities to foreign shores. The impetus to make this kind of move which tends to be fairly expensive up front because you have factories, materials, and trained workers already operating in, let's say, Pittsburgh, is that costs have gone up in Pittsburgh to such a degree that you could actually save money over the long term, and in some cases the relatively short term within just a few years, even after all that additional investment, by rebuilding everything and retraining a brand new workforce overseas, maybe in India or Malaysia or China. Thus, as the world became more interconnected following World War II, and the rich world became more diplomatically connected with, and in some ways entangled with, the poorer world, due to newly empowered diplomatic entities like the United Nations, and commerce incentivizing entities like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was the 1947 precursor to the World Trade Organization, which made trade between nations more possible and in many ways more beneficial than ever before, using what amounted to basic default treaty boilerplate and rules. As those new systems blended with new technologies and shipping capabilities developed during the war, governments started looking across borders for customers, but also for business partners. And in some cases, because of the wealth disparity between these newly interacting, newly trading nations, there were also significant arbitrage opportunities. It might cost one one-hundredth as much to pay a factory worker in Vietnam compared to paying someone doing the same labor in Pittsburgh. And although you might want to keep those jobs local for political, ideological, or traditional reasons, that kind of savings on recurring expenses is a compelling opportunity for companies willing to make that upfront investment and risk pushback from their local regulators and customer base. This is why in the 1960s, after those post-war effects were both recognized and acted upon, foreign infrastructure was built and laborers trained, a whole lot of industry from wealthy nations like the US, UK, and European nations in particular, but far from exclusively, began to migrate overseas. As these wealthy economies shifted from manufacturing to knowledge work, a company's highest paid employees, no longer skilled laborers, but instead middle managers and folks working in creative fields, and people who interface with customers and clients, those jobs, too, became targets of this overseas migration effort. Large investments were consequently made in places like India by companies, but also by the Indian government, to make sure more of these sorts of jobs, IT workers in particular, especially at first in India, would land on their shores, allowing the companies hiring them to pay less per person for essentially the same work, while these foreign employees made a lot more money than they could expect to earn working for a comparable local firm. This orchestrated exodus of certain aspects of a company's labor and infrastructure to cheaper locations around the world was initially enabled by those aforementioned post-World War II technologies and supply chains that popped up or were reinforced 
as a direct consequence of wartime supply chains and programs like the Marshall Plan, but was amplified by innovations in telecommunications technologies, beginning with increasingly high-quality telephone services and faxing capabilities, before exploding with the advent of the consumer-era internet. These new technologies further allowed companies to benefit from pockets of know-how and existing infrastructure in other places. So if a car manufacturer goes out of business in Malaysia, there's a chance a company from the UK could come in and scoop up their factories, relationships with raw material suppliers, and their workforce, granting them additional capabilities and capacity right off the bat, while also potentially reducing their reliance on their at-home workforces and relationships and tools which then gives them the option of downsizing some of those more expensive assets or keeping them up and maintaining that increased scale and those external supply lines and distribution hubs. This practice, though great in many ways for the companies saving money and distributing their risk and resources in this fashion, tend to be not great for the folks who are fired because their jobs have been offshored. This has, in fact, become something of a political hot potato in recent decades, as offshoring became common enough that corporations which previously received tax incentives and regulatory favoritism from politicians started to see new rules and regulations and political environments that no longer favored them, or at least not to the same degree. They were leaving a lot of local voters stranded and unemployed in regions that suddenly had a lot fewer jobs to offer. And that meant either moving their HQ, their corporate headquarters as well, to avoid being punished by all those pissed off people and the folks they elected into office, or figuring out a way to bring new jobs into the area that would be more economically tenable, which isn't easy because you can't just swap in an assembly line worker for an IT professional. Retraining takes time, and not everyone wants to change professions to begin with. What I'd like to talk about today is a new permutation of this concept of unloading aspects of an industry overseas for monetary and or skill and asset related benefits and how a transition toward a new offshoring approach might play out in the coming years. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The pushback against the offshoring efforts of corporations in wealthy countries continues to this day, though many of the most flagrant efforts were conspired and completed in the 1980s and 90s, with a huge IT-related wave culminating in the mid-20-teens. As a consequence of that shift, we've seen what amounts to forced migrations of unemployed people from smaller and medium-sized towns and cities to more urban areas where there are still jobs to be had, and quite a few legal efforts meant to disincentivize the offshoring of jobs in this way, to basically ensure more locals are able to get decent-paying work, lest these locales be drained of their populations and or monetary resources because all those jobs and the money folks would otherwise be paid have been sent to India or similar offshore-heavy regions, and the people who previously worked said jobs and earned said money moved on to denser regional city centers. There's a movement running parallel to the offshore effort, nearshoring, which is exactly what it sounds like. 
Rather than a company in the U.S. sending its jobs to, for instance, India, it'll send its jobs to Mexico, which is closer, which makes the transition easier. In some cases, allows workers to move with the jobs if they'd like to, and can reinforce relationships between those neighboring countries, which typically have decent relationships and comparable regulatory environments to begin with, which makes the trade and tax and tariff angle of such moves less cumbersome. This tends to be good for the economics of the companies involved, as you can typically pay someone in Mexico less than someone living in neighboring Texas. But it's also nice because visiting the work sites only take a few hours of travel time or less, and because there tends to be a bit more security, having all that stuff nearby, which then makes it easier to check up on, whereas moving to China instead could mean a lot more hurdles, a lot more possible antagonism between your government and the host government and a great deal of difficulty checking up on how things are going, including, among other things, making sure human rights aren't being violated, which is an increasingly vital concern in an era in which more customers and clients care about that sort of thing for various reasons. It also makes it less likely that intellectual property will be stolen or otherwise violated, as neighboring countries tend to, though this isn't always the case, have similar IP laws, intellectual property laws, so they can more easily transact with each other on a regular basis. Onshoring became trendy around the same time as nearshoring, and it refers to bringing jobs back to the company's home country, something that is often expedient to do politically and in terms of brand perception in some parts of the world while also, in some cases, being cost-effective, if usually in asymmetric ways. That cost-effectiveness might be the consequence of not having to pay certain fees that are necessary overseas, might be the consequence of tax benefits offered back home, and might be the result of a million tiny paper cuts like travel costs and small tariffs that add up over time. Onshoring also became more popular as issues with supply chains and the security of a company's assets started to come into question in China in particular. Beginning in the 21st century, China started to move up the production chain, shifting from being the manufacturing factory hub of the world to making their own products and designs. Many of these innovations were stolen from foreign companies that set up shop in China. The Chinese government demanded these companies divulge all their secrets if they wanted to do business in the gigantic Chinese market, then handed off a lot of those microchip designs and coding innovations and other sorts of technologies and tricks to their local government-tied corporations. This allowed them to move fast and basically soak up the best the world had to offer before incentivizing those foreign companies to leave. And it took a while for those foreign companies to realize what was going on, but now, in the wake of all that IP theft, some of them feel pretty burned and want to rebase as much as possible back home, where that's not as much of an issue. And some are either incentivized or required to do so, especially if they trade in sensitive tech, like chips and security technology. Their governments don't want that stuff to help other governments and their associated corporations, and keeping that kind of work within the confines of their security apparatuses and their geographies makes such theft trickier and more expensive for those doing the thieving. Onshoring also became popular, though, because many of these foreign countries, China included, have seen huge increases in average pay over the past few decades. And as a consequence of that, the math no longer works out so squarely in favor of offshoring. When foreign companies are doing the math and trying to figure out if it's worth the effort to fire all those people, build entirely new infrastructure overseas, and hire a whole new employee base, 
It's just not as compelling a monetary opportunity anymore. And though new locations around Southeast Asia and Central and South America in particular have been popping up to fill those needs that are being evacuated by the likes of China, many companies are seeing the writing on the wall in terms of security and competition. So many of them are deciding to eat that additional cost of doing business back home, which in turn allows them to trumpet their products and services and corporate ethical values as patriotic. So it's kind of a win-win in that regard, at least. Now, the article I'd like to unspool today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, Onshoring is so last year, the new lingo is friendshoring. The state of play in the Pacific Ocean is important to understand if you want to grok the concept of friendshoring. Basically, just as the U.S. and other wealthy nations have long built relationships with foreign governments that have resulted in being granted the right to have military bases in those foreign countries, China is beginning to do the same. And though China only has one military base that we know of at least in a foreign country at the strategically important mouth of the Red Sea in Djibouti, where the U.S. also has a base, they also seem to be aggressively moving to set up more bases on islands across the Pacific Ocean. And those efforts, which would sort of mimic those made by the United States during World War II as part of their island-hopping strategy to hit Japan, but in reverse, they're raising alarm bells in the Pentagon, as the U.S. really, really does not like to have big military assets that are not their own anywhere near the U.S. mainland. This is only part of China's ongoing militarization of the Pacific, and most of their bulwarking efforts are still solidly aimed at the South China Sea, where they are diplomatically scuffling with essentially all of their neighbors over fishing rights and all the bases that they keep building, essentially overnight, on islands throughout the South China Sea, many of them claimed by multiple nations. But the idea is that China is becoming expansionary, and the U.S. and its allies do not like that, and so something needs to be done from their perspective. This is also happening at a moment in which supply chains have been well and truly borked by the COVID pandemic. Trade relationships have been frayed and in some cases paused by politics, by the pandemic, and by shortages and shutdowns. And the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has upended all sorts of industries, showing the world's governments that they have vulnerabilities to which they weren't previously paying proper attention including those related to vital raw materials, non-military products like baby formula, and intellectual property related to science, technology, design, and otherwise. All of which means the long, entangled relationship between a huge number of government entities, but the U.S. and China in particular, are unraveling quite rapidly. And that means a lot of the offshoring that was done in previous decades is being questioned for practical and economic, but also security-related reasons, lest the U.S. become too reliant on China for making its stuff, and lest China become too reliant on the U.S. for intellectual property and research and education. The concept of friend-shoring, as mentioned in that Bloomberg piece, refers to a new-ish concept that's being tossed around by many entities right now because of that new trade-related context to which we're all scrambling to adjust. In essence, this concept promises that we can keep offshoring, but we should do so only with our political and military allies. This, in theory, would allow those mutually beneficial relationships to be built, the kind we've seen in various shapes and sizes since the 1960s and before, but it would reduce the risk of serious security and military issues related to those relationships. 
So while China could cut the U.S. off from all sorts of manufactured goods that it makes for U.S. companies, if the two ever come into conflict over Taiwan, it's far less likely that Taiwan or New Zealand or Belgium or one of the U.S.'s other staunch allies would do the same. The original term for this concept was actually ally-shoring, but friend-shoring became the well-publicized version of it after the U.S. Biden administration released a 250-page report on the matter in mid-2021. The concept achieved still more potency after it was reposted and updated in mid-2022, taking into account the invasion of Ukraine and all the geopolitical complexities that have emerged as a result, including burgeoning global food shortages, energy shortages of the artificial and unavoidable variety, the depletion of fundamental but often invisible raw material like neon and sunflower oil on the international market, and the inability to use some ports and supply lines, like Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea, which are currently, as of the day I'm recording this, still blockaded by the Russian military, which is holding up the export of a whole lot of wheat and food oil and other such necessities. This concept as proposed by the U.S. and seconded by allies like Australia, which has a lot to lose if the Chinese dominate the Pacific, also has the side benefit in the eyes of military leaders of largely cutting China out of the equation, providing all sorts of economic benefits and supply stability for countries willing to ally with Western nations in this way, which then in turn reduces the likelihood of China being able to bring them into the Chinese military orbit, which then also reduces the likelihood that the Chinese will be able to expand their military bases into these countries. That possibility of Chinese military expansion is no mirage. They've already signed a deal with the Solomon Islands to expand their security apparatus to the region. And though the Chinese were denied entry by a group of Pacific Island nations that voted as a bloc, some of those nations have confirmed that they're making individual deals with the Chinese government, which could mean the slow island-hopping, diplomatic, followed by military-base-related partnerships are working, at least a little. Ground has also recently been broken on a joint effort naval port expansion in Cambodia, which Western governments worry will become a military outpost in the Gulf of Thailand for the Chinese Navy, though both Cambodian and Chinese officials deny that is why this expansion is being built. The new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, which replaces the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, that the U.S. signed then withdrew from under former President Trump, is part of the U.S.'s plan to shift the region away from China's sphere of influence and to lock in vital trade relationships at the same time. Specifics for the IPEF are still being worked out, but the general idea is that signatory nations will have better trade options and fewer limitations and tariffs than those who don't sign on, and will also have the ability to participate in the group's friend-shoring activities. That might mean companies like The Gap, Walmart, Apple, Amazon, all of which are shifting a whole lot of their China-based efforts elsewhere, thus far mostly to Southeast Asian and South and Central American nations that are on good terms with the U.S., might also set up shop in these other nations across the Pacific. Those trade relationships would also function as de facto security relationships, in that syncing up with China's military becomes a bit of a no-go for those involved and benefiting from these other Western connections. We will see how these smaller Pacific nations respond as more details about this pact are divulged and as China's inevitable counteroffers are presented.
but it would seem, especially considering the future we're headed toward, to be a decently compelling, if still hazy, and no doubt also imperfect, offer. Friendshoring is an important concept for what it represents economically, then, but also because of what it represents militarily. It demonstrates that governments are seeing economics as an increasingly powerful weapon moving into the next decade, and that economic relationships might become just as important as, or even indistinguishable from, security relationships in the coming years. It's also an important concept to understand for what it might mean for the new global order that seems to be slowly taking shape around the world. Critics of this concept contend that it's really just regressive Cold War-era expansionism by any other name. It's the expansion of spheres of influence, which is great for those at the center of these influential gravity wells, but not so much for those that are treated like pawns or squares on a game board upon which those larger, more powerful entities compete for power. It's been argued that friendshoring will reinforce the worst elements of globalization, like the repression of workers in poorer countries, where employers will be incentivized to keep paychecks low so manufacturing jobs from overseas will keep flowing into their economy. And it's been argued that it could set back efforts to implement more sustainable and humane infrastructure and production methods because the bad stuff, mistreatment of workers, pollution of ecosystems, gobs of waste, can just be sent overseas. Something that more companies and customers are attempting to influence in various ways across the wealthy world, prominently seen in the pushback against purported slave labor in parts of China, but a process that could begin reverting as these components of the making things stack are scattered, are redistributed around the world, in some cases to countries where such efforts will be more easily concealed and less easily tracked. That said, it's been estimated that iPhones would cost more than twice as much if they were produced entirely in the United States, rather than primarily overseas. Apple buys iPhone components from 43 countries spread across six continents, and that's after major corporate efforts to shift their supply and labor chains away from abusive regions and governments and subcontractors, relying more heavily on those that have shown themselves to be relatively better. It's also been argued that lacking some kind of recalibration of the globalization model we've used these past several decades, companies will need to start stockpiling supplies and inventory like they did in previous decades, which would lead to more warehousing requirements, more overproduction, and more pollution generated to keep those stockpiles at the necessary levels. So while there are arguably plenty of rational reasons to push back against friend-shoring efforts, there are also some fundamental pocketbook-related arguments that land heavily in its favor. And when it comes to making policy decisions, those types of concerns tend to take on outsized prominence. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Revelations in Air, a Guidebook to Smell by Jude Stewart. I love nonfiction books about topics that I've never read about or thoroughly explored before. And surprisingly, because it's one of our few main senses, smell is something that I'd never investigated very thoroughly before. And this book is about smell. And it was informative and interesting enough that it made me want to go take some kind of class on smell because I realized how little I actually pay attention to that ever so important sense. 
This, I would argue, is a topic that's become even more pressing and interesting at a moment in which there is a global pandemic, that pandemic caused by a disease that is often distinguishable because patients sometimes lose their sense of smell. But I would also argue this is something that is just compelling and fascinating unto itself, no matter the era we are living in and no matter what our personal or societal relationships happen to be with smell at the moment. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Revelations in Air by Jude Stewart. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.